we started, we were starting to get refeatured at this time. So we had that going. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had organics coming in plus paid. We we're doing paid user acquisition with the same sort of marketing, um, kind of going in all cylinders. So then what we saw was um, like a, a near like $2 million uptick in revenue. Um, it was like going up almost 60% week over week. Wow. Just because of this because we marketed it effectively. Um, Facebook likes, we generated over 50,000 um, in, in under two weeks. And then our YouTube channel, which was very small, uh, we got you know a half a million views of our trailers. Um, so that was like a watershed moment for us. From Intempt, this is Faces of Growth, where we get real about what works in marketing and how marketing leaders of today have grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Brittany. Marketing Manager at Intempt Technologies. Today I'm with Jeff Mosher. Jeff has held the Manager and Director of Marketing positions at a number of gaming studios, including EA Games. In this conversation, Jeff tells me how his team saw a near $2 million uptake in revenue, 50,000 Facebook likes in under two weeks, and half a million views of their trailers on what was then their small YouTube channel, and the marketing tactics behind that success. He also talks about how he overcame his biggest gaming funnel challenge, getting people to come play it in the first place and then stay in the game. And his at times quirky personalization and engagement tactics. Now I know that you want to hear what he did with those cats and some advice on maximizing a soft launch to acquire and engage users. There's specific strategy and tactics discussed in this particular episode. So whether you're in gaming or not, the ideas and methods likely apply. Listen up. Hello, this is Brittany with Faces of Growth, and I have with me today Jeff Mosher. Can you tell me about a time in your career that you experienced significant growth, either in your personal career or in your company as a result of your marketing? And also tell me what brought about that growth and then what lessons you learned from it. Okay. Yeah. So uh, going back to gaming, uh, 2014, I had left EA Mobile. I joined a startup. Yeah. Um, Silicon Beach, Los Angeles, a lot of game publishers there, like in San Francisco. Um, and um, in when I was interviewing there before I had taken the role, um, I saw a prototype for a puzzle game. Yeah. Um, and I kind of knew, I'm like, this is the game I'm going to work on. Like, I knew I wasn't actually interviewing to work on that game, but I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. Um, I didn't really tell the CEO that, but uh, <laughs> I knew we had to get our IP what we were working on in front of, you know, first party. Uh, so Apple, um, Google, Amazon, um, eventually like steam and other, other outlets. Um, but I knew this, this would have likes, like they would just love it. Um, the name of the game was our, like it already been determined. It was called fast finger. Um, wow. so it was a tactile game where you're playing mazes. Um, it, and trying to, you know, it's kind of time-based, um, but you're just trying to get from basically point A to point B without dying. Um, and, you know, your finger sort of hypothetically gets sawed off. Um, you get hit by lasers, that kind of stuff. Ah. So it's really, the fact that your, you know, your finger is really part of the game, I, I thought made it, it was just so fun, you know? And um, it's very, <laughs> uh, the name was just short, alliterative. It was just sort of like, already, it came already built, basically. I just had to kind of bring it to market. So um, CEO wanted to release it like yesterday. And I was like, well, we haven't talked to Apple, Google, Amazon. We haven't put together like a marketing plan. We haven't soft launch. 
Um, we haven't done user acquisition. We haven't done any testing. He's like, oh, we don't budget for that. So, you know, eventually we got um, about four months to work on it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, kind of building up to trust with the, um, the guy who created it, um, sort of explaining to him, like, what I brought to the table, how I could get his game to a much wider audience, um, eventually kind of translated. And then I was able to bring on a designer I'd work with at EA who could do um, just amazing user experience, graphic design, who could really kind of bring the game to life, the packaging, uh, even helping with some of the, the in-game assets, uh, and then sort of translate that into a, a really compelling submission package. Um, also give us, um, you know, creative for user acquisition, social media, PR, so just kind of get that whole kit together. Yeah. Um, and then I started, I started using this game and then two or three others that were in the pipeline as our story because we mm -hmm. hadn't ever pitched ourselves to first party. So I put together a deck, you know, with a lot of input from the CEO. Here's who I think, you know, I think we should stick with the name of our company. I think we should stick with the name of this game. Made some recommendations on how we should present ourselves, you know, took a picture, all that stuff, you know, kind of got us looking more like a business. Um, and, you know, we went up um, and I, some of these people at Apple and Google I knew from EA or different places. So I just used those relationships, um, you know, got the game in front of, um, you know, all three relationship teams, uh, Apple, Google, and Amazon. Uh, got a lot of good feedback on it, got some feedback that we had to address. So got a little more time to develop the game, a little more time to put it in launch, um, to sort of build a community around it. Um, and then uh, we did a few other things which were innovative at the time. Um, there weren't a lot of games that were using um, influencer, um, so like paid influencer and free. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was pretty new. Um, and a lot of that, a lot of those talent agencies were in LA, and we mm -hmm. knew some of those people. So it was very easy to get because they want to get, they want to get in your good graces. You want to get in their good graces. So they give you kind of really good deals as a first time customer. Um, but also they, they want to make games too. Some of them did. So, wow. um, you know, they were giving us primo inventory on the hopes that we would cut an IP with them later from one of their celebrities, which was actually something we wanted to do. So it was kind of like a good win. -win. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we didn't have the money to, to, you know, pay the premium prices. So, uh, <laughs> it was great for us. Um, and then another thing we did was the game was made in unity. So we added every play, which I think they're shutting down now, but, um, it was kind of like Unity's version of Twitch. Mm -hmm. uh, and what that allowed us to do was because this game was so visceral, um, that allowed us to do a video overlay so uh, people could, like influencers, could basically record their sessions, do commentary, uh, have th their face plus the gameplay on a split screen, and then share it on social media or YouTube or wherever. Um, so that really helped because we were one of the uh, few games that was like, um, you know, going to get like a big featuring that was using this technology, like uh, the first party folks weren't, um, you know, were cool with, but thought it was kind of new, kind of helped, um, you know, with our overall sort of pitch and our go-to-market plan. Yeah. So that's the virality of the game um, because some other influencers noticed it and then started kind of parroting us and doing the same sort of thing we were doing. So it just sort of like snowballed. And then when we launched, because we got, you know, uh, really good featuring. We had done some targeted user acquisition. We did a little more. We had a PR company, uh, Boutique One, working for us. And then we just kind of like, you know, basically knocked on every single door, you know, metaphorically we could to try to um, generate buzz about the game. Um, we got 1.6 million installs in the first week. Holy um, cow. 
No, yeah, it's way like you know, way more than we thought. Um, and when we told our our you know first party um, reps, they were surprised at how many installs we got. Um, and you know, we became for a very short period of time because it's super competitive, the number one puzzle game in sixty countries. Mm-hmm. So you know, it was cool to be like indie developer, and then you're next to like Candy Crush Bam. and games that you know are going to just basically essentially push you out of the way soon but like you know you're you were there for a while yeah yeah and that was that was kind of the lesson learned right um you know we, we needed more time to really it was a free-to-play game it may have worked better as a paid game we weren't sure maybe we could have done both both games because some puzzle games do paid light or free-to-play you know with maybe other you know paid beyond there's there's all kinds of ways you can take those games yeah because uh, they're yeah. so light and you know it, it's easy to experiment um so we didn't do that we didn't really have time to do that and then we didn't have enough content you know ready so like we the players churned through the levels much faster than we were expecting um we had like uh dark levels which was like the levels in reverse which a lot of puzzle games do um so we had that mechanic we were going to release a level editor but you know we just like we needed to get updates out like every three weeks yeah and it's just hard for us to hit that cadence because we were already in other areas at that point um, you know, we were hemorrhaging players, um, cause our, our, just, our funnel wasn't, we didn't really have enough time to work in our funnel. Uh, we weren't doing enough user acquisition, the, the featuring was gone, you know, so it, it was just sort of like this massive waterfall. Um, it was, um, you know, a great lesson, um, in how like easily you can achieve success, you know, with timing and, um, sort of the right planning and then how quickly that can evaporate. And I think that's analogous to pretty much every mobile publisher. Yeah. Uh, I think when you get to a certain scale, um, you learn how to um, how to sustain that mm-hmm. growth. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of ways to do it, um, but you know we were kind of learning all that in real time, and it was uh, it was remarkable. It was a really fun experience. Wow. What were some of the biggest lessons that you took away from that experience? Um, I think I really um, used it as an example of um, you know. You need you need uh, more telemetry data um, for a longer period of time than you're thinking. Um, mm-hmm. You need to um, use the tools that the first party um, folks give you. Like they're okay with soft launching in English speaking territories. Do it. You know, find games, find do your research, find territories where there's similar apps that do well, and release there. Do user acquisition there. Do outreach there. Um, just basically become an expert in those territories and then figure out what the critical mass you need for, for that IP. Is it 10,000? Is it 50,000? Is it a hundred thousand? You know, what, what's going to prove out your economy or if it's a paid model, like your price point. Yeah. Um, Cause all of that, you, you don't really have a second chance on that. So, you know, we kind of learned that in, in real time and we kind of knew that was going to happen, but you know, for us, um, the bigger story was, we had other indie developers coming up to us at that point and said, you guys can publish. We want to publish our IP with you. So that was like this, that was what the CEO was wanting to do. And so then we kind of positioned the company that way and used the success of this game. So it, it, it paid off in other ways. Um, you know, Good. So I, I'd say um, there was always a silver, that, that's always the silver lining. Um, I think the content thing I mentioned, um, it's super hard to have six months of content. Like when you're launching a game, just ready. I mean, everyone says they're going to do that. I, I haven't seen studio. I haven't seen a studio I've worked with like 
have that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's there, but there's still a lot of work that has to be done yeah. to get it there. Um, but I mean, that should be your goal, right? Because um, you're um, you're never going to be able to predict like um, level progression unless you're in soft launch for like a year and a half. You know, you got this massive budget. Um, you know, and most publishers don't have that. Yeah. So, um, those are some of the lessons. Good. So, what are some of the biggest challenges that you experience in the funnel when you're dealing with games, and how do you overcome them? This is pretty yeah. broad so question, I, but yeah, there's there's a ton. That, um, I think three areas that I want to talk about are churn, right? So people just kind of like I was talking about, they they just don't stay in your game long enough. Yeah. Or or never really. Right. Um, uh, so that's a problem. I think that's probably the. Uh, the main problem people focus on. I think yeah. another one um, that I want to touch on is cross-promotion. Mm -hmm. um, there's different definitions of that. And then, you know, sunsetting, right? So if you have a portfolio games, the way you, there's a, there's a way to kind of artfully sunset a game um, that in a way that kind of funnels that traffic to the games you think they should be playing. So yeah. that, that requires a lot of coordination, but that's important too. Um, so I'd say, you know, from the beginning of the funnel to the end of the funnel, um, like those are the three areas that I think um, people stress over a lot. Um, for churn, um, you really have to A-B test your um, onboarding experience. Mm -hmm. So like your first-time user experience, um, it's never really done. Like it, you're always kind of modifying it. It might be very slight, but it's all based on, you know, the telemetry data, what the, um, you know, the bounce points are, um, just issues that you're seeing. Um, where people are exiting, why, um, what changes you've made, um, you know, what results that have made, um, how uh, organics versus paid, you know, trend through the uh, first-time user experience. Um, you have to kind of slice both and look at both. Um, so that that's well worth the, the pain and suffering. Um, I'd say monitoring level uh, progress and content consumption. Uh, we were just talking about that with the fast finger game. I think yeah. that's any freemium game, any uh, strategy game, any game with like episodic content. That that's key. Um, uh, having you know, this is something we struggle on. Um, you know, in my current role, is like a clear core loop progression. What does the user need to be doing like two weeks in? Like, yeah, need to know that. Like, that right. needs to be. Clear. What does the app do to to sort of illuminate that for them? Um, for, for games, like a robust elder game is key. Mm -hmm. um, there should be ways that the, basically the gameplay never ends. If you can do that, not all games can do that. Um, but, you know, core and casual games do that. So there's a lot of lessons there. I think social competition, if it's um, possible within your gameplay experience, really key because that also drives virality uh, yeah. and free virality, which is good. Um, constantly rewarding players. Um, Every time they come into the game, something new, Easter egg, flash sale, like whatever, you know, kind of depends on the, the model of the game. Yeah. Uh, limitless customization, I, I think, is is great. Um, and then if you're a freemium game, the, uh, you know, a lot of the games are designed with, like, an uncapped spend potential. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, I think that's deliberate. That's, that's how they make money. Right? It's a very, very small percentage of users spending an obscene amount of money, uh, and that's the way it works. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't work that way if you, <laughs> if you could only spend $500, right? Right. Um, a lot in a, in a free to play game. Um, 
for a cross promotion, um, I, I think um, if you have relationships with the stores, right, they're always looking for, well, obviously they, they want to give you a good placement during launch, um, depending on what else is going on in the store at that time. Right. Um, but they also have lots of times when, you know, it may not be Valentine's Day or Christmas or Thanksgiving, um, but there's some random holiday. And if you know that that's coming and they can build your content schedule around that, that's mm-hmm. a potential easy free featuring. You could maybe get 50,000 installs and not have to pay for a single one. Um, a lot of teams forget to do that. Um, yeah. And it's just because it takes, it takes some effort. It takes kind of relationship management. But I, I, I learned that lesson at EA and after EA um, that, you know, thinking about, you know, really studying the app stores and what's their calendar, right? And like, how do we get on it? And, you know, um, a lot of that is, um, it's good old, old fashioned sales, um, but it's also just sort of creative, you know, marketing um, and, and, and game development and design. Um, I think you have to um, optimize the inventory that you have. Yeah. Um, to drive traffic to and from your game, um, especially if you have a portfolio of games, um, your you know revenue is going to be uh, you know in-app purchases, um, you know small amounts of the inventory you may have through like offer walls and uh, maybe um, other um, like rewards or you know whatever whatever else you might be doing yeah. with um, storefront and, and those sort of other aspects of the game. Um, so I think also um, I learned with the, a lot of the casual games I worked on to treat, um, it's kind of more of a mindset thing, but to treat each update as a relaunch of the game. So oh. everything, icons new, the screenshots are new, uh, new promo video, um, you know, and that, that actually works. A lot of people um, just kind of run out of things to do. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, even if they're not spending, like there's just, that everything is stale. They've seen this before. So um, really marketing all the new, the wow, the whiz bang factor, I think is, is, is key. And that, that creates engagement, which leads to retention, which leads to monetization. Right. Um, for sunset, I think you don't want to rush into it. So like the more time, the merrier, you have to be really transparent in your communications as to why you're doing it. Um, you know, don't beat around the bush. Um, just tell them to the extent you possibly can, why you're, why you're shutting down the game. Um, you know, it's okay to say if it didn't do well, right? Mm-hmm. That happens. You know, most games fail. That's transparent. Um, hence transparency, yeah. Um, and then I would say um, and, ensure users have, like, time to make, if they purchase things, uh, give them time to, like, use them. Um, not That's not going to be possible if someone buys thing, something in, like, like, the last 48 hours of the game, and you've gone out of your way to tell them, like, hey, we're shutting down the store, and, like, you know. Um, but... I, you know, uh, you know, related to that, I would say be generous with special offers and then offer make goods in other games. Um, yeah. You know, big publishers do that a lot, um, especially when you can identify a player as like coming for another game. Yeah. And open up something for them. I mean, that's kind of a, a really cool moment, I think. Wow. Uh, what marketing tactics did you use in the past that you notice are fading away now? And what do you think is bringing about that shift? Yeah, um, there's so much tech that's kind of come and gone and so many platforms that have come and gone. But I would say in terms of like inventory, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about what I used to stress over making. Uh, big banner ads, 
kind of happy to see those gone um, and replaced by native ads. Um, yeah. You know, because they're just less annoying, like to users. Totally. Um, um, and you know, they're easier to make. They're like less buggy. You know, everyone does them the same way, more or less. Um, you know, and they they auto fit. Like they're great. Um, so I don't miss those. Uh, but that, that's been a huge shift. Um, I'd say in terms of social media, marketing, um, I never had a lot of success buying on Twitter. I always wanted to because of the scale. Yeah. Um, never, it never translated for me in, um, you know, like soft launch or post launch, mm -hmm. uh, marketing. Um, I think also, um, the platform itself, uh, I think if you look at like Instagram and Snapchat, um, when you're, um, doing advertising there, it just, I think that just the design of it, it just seems a little more authentic and less transactional. A sponsor tweet looks like a sponsor tweet every time. Yep. Um, so I think, you know, uh, uh, just my guess, um, but I, I just don't have data to, um, back that one up, but just, um, you know, I, I always found that, um, uh, visually I was more engaged as a user by ads on those two platforms than, uh, Twitter. Um, I think in terms of talking about calls to action, um, a lot has changed with uh, the millennial generation. Um, the sort of the assumption that you'll just put your message out there and it'll be received and your call to action to go do this or buy that um, will just be, yes, mission, you know, uh, message received. Um, that's kind of been um, kicked to the curb. And so you, you see a lot of these sort of thought-provoking and engaging calls to actions, you know, join us on this, you know, and, um, you know, taking customers on a journey and speaking to some, some higher goal, right. uh, or some loftier sense of purpose. And sometimes it's a little corny. Um, but other times I think, you know, you see good examples of it and it, it makes for better, you know, adver advertisements. Yeah. At the end of the day. Um, yeah. I think with, um, machine learning, um, they talking now a little bit about like SEO, um, some of the trickery that you used to be able to do, um, you know, keyword trickery, just, um, just sort of backend stuff. Um, the search engines catch up to that so quickly now. Um, so I, I think it's a good shift. What are your thoughts now, um, on the best way to wield personalization in gaming to increase engagement and revenue, um, for an acquired user? Um, I, thinking about that one um, a little bit before. And um, I think um, going back to Snapchat, um, I like what they do with filters a lot. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, my daughter and I do it all the time. It's funny. Um, she's way better at it than I am. <laughs> um, I'd love to see games um, take this technology. Um, I know Snapchat bought a company that, does this. Um, yeah. but you know, the technology, you know, is there, you know, they use a similar technology in like Madden, um, and, and those types of sports games. Um, but I think it'd be cool if you could put yourself more in the game and like, if it's a cooperative play game, like your fellow guild members, mm -hmm. and then maybe by doing that, like you unlock more content that's like specific to you and your aesthetic and your guild aesthetic or whatever. Um, so this whole idea of like that accelerating, like the peacocking aspect of gaming, um, which as you get into core gaming, like really actually means a lot to players. People invest a lot of time and money 
yeah. and games in that. Um, so I think there's there's some wins there. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see if that happens. I, I might be totally crazy. Um, and then I think, um, you know, um, we all saw like Pokemon Go take. Oh gosh. Yeah, it, like just take <laughs> off like wildfire because it used AR and location in a yeah. way that hadn't been done with a big IP. Right. Um, so I think that's kind of opened up like worlds within worlds, but I think that's the challenge is like figuring out non stickish ways to, um, blur, uh, excuse me, blur the boundaries, like, uh, fantasy and reality. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, um, I think with what's going on with networking and like 5g, um, I think that's going to help. It's going to be easier, um, mm -hmm. to pull that off. So I think that's an area where there's a ton of innovation and it's, it's pretty amazing. So games are super personalized and monetization in the game is based on individual behavior, typically, uh, that's happening as they're playing, not the game properties or the user registration properties. So how is personalization ever used with your newly acquired traffic to help hook that, that gamer in and keep them there? Um, yeah. Um... In, in my gaming experience, um, one example um, that I recall that worked pretty well, um, the game, The Sims Freeplay, it mm -hmm. was um, iOS, Android, Amazon. It's now Sims Mobile. Mm -hmm. um, but so Sims Freeplay, I think it was in the App Store for about five years, did very well for EA. Um, the team I was working on at the time, we were like the content producers for the free-to-play games. Yeah. Free to play mobile games. Um, so we had a lot of latitude to work directly with the studio um, and the product marketing managers to determine, okay, here's all this awesome content you guys are building. Mm -hmm. Here's some of the crazy ways we can market it. And yeah. because it was kind of early and free to play, um, the company was a little more hands off with what we did. Uh, There's a lot of experimentation. Um, so we were doing things with, you know, push notifications leading to. Um, in-app notifications leading to interstitials to really showcase the new content, but not only to showcase it, to tease it in like mm -hmm. an episodic way. Mm -hmm. So we started, we got the playbook for these updates, you know, months in advance. And then we started building the campaigns like a month or two before with the idea of slowly leaking out the material to really, mm -hmm. really engage the core user base, but then to also have this like rush of new content that you know, hopefully we got refeatured. Uh, hopefully EA gave us some great cross promotional traffic. Uh, maybe we got some PR. You know, whatever. Um, the idea was to really use the content to drive acquisition, um, engagement, and retention. Yeah. And we figured to do it with the updates because it was kind of like a new season of a TV show. That was kind of how we thought of it. Right. And eventually, that became a strategy that EA brought to you know Apple and Google. Um, and said, look, this is all the stuff we're doing in our free-to-play games. This is all this new content. It's kind of like a relaunch of the game. Will you please re-feature us? At the time, it was basically the model was still, you, lo you launch, you get featured, and then good luck. Um, so EA and other publishers were saying, you know, look, we're adding, like, celebrities. We're doing all this stuff. Um, you know, re-feature us because we're doing all this user acquisition. We're, getting, we're not getting the traffic, like, organically from your platform. Um, and we know the only way to do that is with featuring. So um, eventually that, that argument went out when we started sharing some of the data that we were getting. Um, so to give you an example, like in June of um, 2012, we had this 
strange update in the Sims replay. It was called the nightclub update. Okay. So the idea is like disco, Friday night, everyone. <laughs> but it, it wouldn't be the Sims if it didn't have other weird mechanics next in. So there was um, like a par uh, like a party boat, which mm -hmm. was also basically the way they integrated Facebook Connect into the game. So you go to the party uh -huh. boat. That's how you bring your friends onto the party boat, and then your the game is linked to Facebook. So that was the mechanic. That was kind of odd, but we played with that. And then they added uh, cats because we had dogs before in an update, and people complained why aren't there cats? Really, <laughs> All those cat people. <laughs> they just couldn't get them at the same time as you know dogs. So sorry, of um, cats, cats coming. So we took those three stories and we kind of wove them together in this teaser campaign. So mm -hmm. you know players that were already in the game. They get hit with a push notification indicating that, you know, kind of go into the game. We're about to disclose some cool stuff that's coming. And then we hit them up with an in-app notification, so like an overlay notification. That would tell part of the story. And then a banner, like a full-screen banner ad. And those, um, uh, we were able at that point to link those that inventory to Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, back then, like a Facebook organic like mattered a lot more than it does now. Yeah. Um, so the plan was like leak it out slowly through the game, through these different like channels we have, and then drive the traffic because we wanted to build up a social media following. And we, we knew we could like harness the traffic in game to do that. So we started sending people to Facebook. We started leaking teaser trailers that we had cut and then like blurred out screenshots, less blurred out screenshots, you know, just uh, snippets, like a little bit every day. Um, and that we really started seeing like upticks in engagement. And then as soon as the content would drop, uh, we kind of go nuts with the cross promotion. We started. We were starting to get refeatured at this time, so we had that going. Mm -hmm. uh, we had organics coming in, plus paid. We we're doing paid user acquisition with the same sort of marketing. Um, kind of going in all cylinders. So then, what we saw was um, like a, a near like two million dollar uptick in revenue. Um, it was like going up almost sixty percent week over week. Wow. Just because of this because we'd marketed it effectively. Um, Facebook likes, we generated over 50,000 um, in, in under two weeks. And then our YouTube channel, which was very small, uh, we got you know a half a million views of our trailers. Um, so that was like a watershed moment for us because we were just kind of experimenting. We took the cats and we, towards the end of the campaign, we created like lol cat memes. And what we did was we had people go to Facebook and submit like, take a screenshot of your SIM cat or use the assets we put on Facebook, create your own meme, like mm -hmm. wallcat style, and submit it to us. And we'll publish the winners in the game, like in, on Facebook and caption them. We had our copywriters like riffing on, on you know, kind of New Yorker style cartoons, like here are some caption options, you know, come up with something better. And every time like the players came up with something better, our copywriters <laughs> were like, well, I'm gonna be out of the job. Um, and, and that really um, actually, you know, cats outsold the dogs. Um, in fairness to the dogs, we didn't do as much marketing around the dogs because we didn't, we didn't quite know how to do that yet at that point. But um, so that was, a, I think that was a story where it was really, this is The Sims, it's about personalization. It's about what do you do with these animals? Um, what do you do when you're on a, in a disco in Simland? You know, like, uh, you know, so we just kind of let people's imagination run wild and then used their activity and their love for the game and their expression of that like as part of our marketing. And it, it yeah. worked. worked very well. Wow, that's amazing. That's quite like a glory story if I've ever heard one.
and like so creative too. That's that's super fun. They use the same strategies for Simpsons Tapped Out and other games, mm-hmm. um, to, you know, to great effect. So it was uh, it was cool to see that kind of content marketing work because content marketing is traditionally kind of very expensive, and you don't always have the great stories. User acquisition is it's very clear, very cut and dry. Yeah. Uh, content marketing it can be a little more nebulous. So this was great that we had so much data to kind of validate what we were doing. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, what what added attribution tracking tech for lifetime value and ROI calculations did you use and find effective? Um, or- yeah, I've used um, Tune um, and um, I've used Kachava. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found them both were good for, um, you know, seeing where your users that you acquire, you know, where they come in, what they do. Um, and it was very easy to integrate that with like a backend sort of Tableau or something for a visualization. So yeah. then like myself, like I could go in once um, and run a report on a campaign I was doing. Um, user acquisition team could do the same thing. Product manager could do the same thing. We could all kind of look at the same information and draw conclusions based on like our core expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then kind of give as a group kind of come up with, well, what are we going to do different the next update or on this next game that we're working on or something. Yeah. So I, I like both of the services. They were, they're fairly easy to integrate. Um, they're pretty robust. Um, That's awesome. Cool. And what advice would you give to other marketers in the gaming world or even to like individual game developers that want to deploy and market on game platforms? I'd say, I know, it's, I know a lot of this is easier said than done, um, so forgive me, but um, I would say develop good first-party relationships, like right out of the gate. Um, a lot of times you can just go to events and mingle and, um, you know, use your LinkedIn to find people uh, at the stores. Um, it, it's, it's well worth it. Um, it's amazing how, um, at the end of the day, it, it's, it's really just, you know, how well you know people. Mm-hmm. in roles that determines whether or not you get a meeting. Uh, this is the case in pretty much any industry. It's definitely the case in gaming uh, as it relates to first-party relationships. So I'd say um, get in get in early and try to go in often. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I'd say also say really study the platforms um, because, you know, they're much more impressed with you when you know um, and you can recite all the ways you're using their device technology mm-hmm. uh, in a way that's meaningful to your game. So when you've thought about that and you've developed it, spent time and integrated it, and then can show it, um, a lot of the job is done. And then it's just sort of, you know, when are you coming out? Um, you know, what's your what's your marketing strategy? They want to see that. Um, are you doing PR? Uh, and then they want to drill into the game mechanics and, um, you know, how much content you have. They ask a lot of the same questions that, you know, um, if you're in a bigger game company, like your management would ask. Yeah. Um, is, you know they they're smart and they know like a good game plan when they see it they know a strong game when they see it uh, and ultimately they they want scale as much as you do so mm-hmm. they're going to invest in you based on you know how much investment you've put into them so i'd say that relationship's key and, and really knowing scratching their back so they scratch yours and thinking of it that way is it is a is a good way to, to go about it um i mentioned soft launch a few times um it's really really key to test your onboarding your uh, ability to acquire, engage, retain, and market um, users, and also your product positioning. Um, you know, as marketers, you tend to validate that kind of early in the development of the game. 
Yeah. Uh, maybe you have a testing budget, maybe you don't. Um, but you sort of go out thinking, okay, I'm in soft launch. This is sort of like how I talk about the game. This is what the visuals of the game are. Um, you know, here's the whole line look, crank that out, you're done. But, you know, that based on the feedback you get um, through telemetry data, through um, community input, uh, customer service, you know, any of those channels, and I can really tell you a lot about how your game's being perceived, um, what people think about when they, you know, when when they hear your your title, um, you know, how they describe your game to other people, um, and a lot of that's you know very very interesting, potentially very impactful, um, you know, ideas for ways to maybe evolve a, a tagline or um, you know the, the pillars of your product. Um, yeah. So don't think about those things as like set in stone. Um, you know, games evolve. They're living, breathing entities. Um, so it's okay. I mean, as a marketer, you're trained to kind of, yes, stick to your guns. You have positioning, you have a tagline, it all kind of rolls up. Um, but it's good to reevaluate that. And it's good to reevaluate it with all the data you can get. Um, yeah. So I, I'd say that that's another key. Um, uh, I'd say when in doubt, um, reward players. Whether it's for like, oh, we screwed up, <laughs> here you go, here's this, um, or it's just, hey, you're a new player, check this out, or it's like, hey, you're a veteran player, this is for you. Um, when you're dealing with, you know, stuff that's made up, you know, it's fake. Um, there's nothing wrong with excessively rewarding players. Um, <laughs> players come to expect that. Um, so I think um, don't be stingy is advice I would give. Mm -hmm. uh, Product managers might not like that advice, but um, I, you know, I've always seen it work well. Um, so, and I would say, um, in terms of hiring, um, don't be afraid to hire chameleons. So I've hired uh, business analytics um, leads that I knew would become a product manager because I, yeah. I just sensed it, and I just let them kind of go in that direction. I gave them some coaching, and they became a product manager. And then I had to hire a business an analyst again. But it was fine because I had a product manager um, and then I had a product manager who could train the business. So, you know, don't be scared if somebody can wear multiple hats. That's a good thing. Um, you know, obviously they should have like a clear role. Um, but in game development, especially in smaller settings, you're juggling lots of disparate responsibilities yeah. and everything's very cross-functional. So, you know, I think it's totally fine if your copywriter can also code. I mean, that, that might be rare, but, um, you know, Embrace it. Like, don't be afraid of those people. Um, they can add a lot of value. Um, so that's yeah. another piece of advice. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing those droplets of wisdom. Uh, this has nothing to do now with <laughs> with any kind of growth or marketing or anything else. Yeah, but sure. behind me, I have this crazy surfboard oh. with a shark bite through it. <laughs> and I know that you're a big surfer, so I wanted to yes. find something to like personalize this experience sure, together <laughs> are you headed out to do any like crazy surfing later on or did you go uh, today I, I would if there were waves but there's really not we had a swell come through and it's kind of gone so um new england in the summertime is kind of quiet um in terms of waves um so you have to kind of contend with smaller waves so you bring out the bigger boards and stand up paddle boards and that sort of stuff um so my shark bitten Therefore, I wouldn't do anything for you. Then. I think it's a cool piece of art. Um, <laughs> That's exactly what it is. It goes up on the wall. <laughs> yeah, 
It's one of those things that people ask you about all the time. You know, do you see sharks in the water? And the answer is pretty much always no. Oh. Um, most people. Um, and then when the answer is yes, it's usually, <laughs> it's usually a pretty, pretty hairy story. Um, oh my God. so yeah, I'll be happy if I never see them, but, uh, you know, you know, they're there and, yeah. um, it's, you, you learn through any kind, I think any kind of ocean activity that, um, you know, the ocean is a very powerful and unforgiving place. Uh, and the fact that you're in it means nothing, you know? <laughs> um, so you have to really respect that. You know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of power that you can harness in lots of cool ways, yeah. but that can also be very destructive, um, to, to people and to places. So you, you learn to kind of appreciate respect and fear it. Okay. Um, so I'd say, um, I'm getting some of those vibes from your from heart, <laughs> but uh, it's all good. So. Cool. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me and sharing all of your wisdom and these insider, um, tidbits that you're, you've shared with me. That's, that's chock full of goodness. So thank you. If you like what you hear, please give us that thumbs up on the Apple podcast app. Also check out our other episodes, including Charlie Cole from Toomey, Jeremiah Andrick from HTC Vive VR, Tom Hennel, formerly the Spartan Race, and Jeff Mosher with Verizon. And if there's anyone that you'd like to nominate to be on Faces of Growth, shoot us an email.